can't never stop working hard. Each day I feel I have to improve. Hard work, determination. I've got to keep pushing myself. Hello and welcome to Haya! When I say who the master, you say. No! Oh, George Clinton. Hell no! Uh, Roachback Riding Rudy. That's it! <laughs> <laughs> Episode 44, recorded August 25th, 2013, starts now. No. Alright. Now, we all know who the mast is, don't we? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And I appreciate you massaging my feet that way. No, no, no. Oh, what? Unless you turn into showing off overnight. <laughs> well, I'm look looking at my at hair, you. my I'm friend. I'm looking at you. You ain't turned into nothing. <laughs> Man, I got, I got football shoulder pads and a football helmet on and a little stay-fro afro that's peeking out out of my football helmet. Mm-hmm. You know who the mask is. Come on. It's you. All right. I give up. <laughs> uh, all right. We've got a show for you today, folks. Um, yes, we do. Uh, the first thing I want to mention is that whole intro is due to the fact that we are going to redo... The mysterious lost episode 42 <laughs> discussion topic on the term master. That's what right. it means, how it should be used, how it shouldn't be used. Uh, is it good, bad, or indifferent? Uh, we're going to cover all that stuff for that. You thought you read the lost term. classics, but uh, you haven't heard them yet, and now no. you're about to. We're about to refine the classic. That's right. We hope, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else have we got up here at the front of the show? Oh, by the way, we're going to have uh, some news and maybe a little bit of a media mop-up at the end. That's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. So we got plenty of content tonight. but uh, We're going to talk at you. We gonna oh. do it. <laughs> that was delicious. It will re- yeah, probably. Oh, back we're off up, to dude. a fine start today. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention to set right that we uh, discussed a little bit on the last show at the beginning was uh, we went ahead and got permission to use oh, the full did. names and details of the personages who have been helping us out of those people. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, actually, I didn't. I didn't even ask Tamron, but I'm just going to wing it. <laughs> All right, then. I'm sure he'd be cool with that. Yeah, I think he would, too. Uh, but uh, Ryan Lindsay hey. has been incredibly instrumental. Yes, he has. In, Thank you so much, Ryan. And kicking our show notes into shape for us and helping us keep up with him. He's doing a ton of work on the back end for that, so... All you listeners out there, give him a big round of applause for making your podcast Yay. a better podcast. Yeah, give him a throat chop. So, uh, again, with his help, we are going to stay current on all those, and they're going to continue to be the same uh, detailed, in-depth show notes that you expect from Haya. That's right. And thanks to... Tamron Thompson. Yes, indeed. That's right. Uh, he helped us pull all the music links and everything together, and we're going to have a bunch of little interny jobs for him coming up in the future, so... Uh, you know, we'll keep you posted on what both of these guys are doing for us, but man, it just warms the cockles of my heart to have listeners come out of the woodwork to actually pitch in and help. Indeed. And it makes a huge difference. It really does. It really does. Our website is actually current up to date. Now we're looking at just add-ons, extra value instead of trying to play catch up. Thanks to you guys. Yeah. Which, which segues me right into another topic here. Cool. Um, we definitely want to give back to the listeners as much as possible. And, you know, these guys helping us out, they'll have their own secret rewards. But all yes, you general you. listeners out there. Y'all all get little mini Judy chops coming <laughs> at you coming soon. 
uh, we were thinking about doing something called the Listener of the Month. That's right. And basically, all you would have to do, and we'll post this on our Facebook page and the Google Plus page, which I actually did finally go look at. Cool. I can't say I've done more than that, but I went and looked at it. Uh, I'll try. I'll try. Uh, but uh, we'll throw this out there. And basically, all you need to do is send us uh, to mailbag at highoutpodcast.com and put L-O-M for Listener of the Month Lom. in the uh, in the subject line. And uh, just send us a short, you know, one paragraph or so bio of yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your connection to martial arts. Uh, you know, if you got a funny story to share, share it. And uh, we will pick from those once a month and have a listener of the month. We'll announce you on the show. We'll read your bio. And uh, we will put you up on the webpage in your own special little place. Yes, indeed. You will be featured on yeah. the website and have a link to your Facebook or Twitter. Or if you got your own little website, stuff like that, you yeah. know. And be really cool. Just imagine having listener of the month for high out podcast in your CV. Who wouldn't want that, man? You could frame that son of a gun. You could. Maybe we should make some little certificates. I think we do. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll even mail you a certificate. We'll see if that turns into a hassle or not. That's right. I'm trying not to write checks that my ass can't cash anymore. Hey. <laughs> Poor Troy Reed still waiting for his t-shirt. That's another thing I'm going to mention, though. The money is finally there, so I'm just looking at options to get these professionally printed, print them ourselves. We did a few test runs. It just didn't work out it's right. you know it's a hassle having to find time with the other people to do it and all that stuff so uh we're going the pro route so sooner rather than later y'all have t-shirts that you can purchase and troy you will have a t-shirt that you can just wear for free that's right because troy we haven't forgotten from the contest earlier this we have year not forgotten hey the longer the wait the sweeter the bait or something <laughs> sweeter the juice baby yeah so uh I mean, uh, yeah, so a listener of the month, LOM in the subject line, send it to mailbag at highapodcast.com, and, and that will put you in the running to be listener of the month. That's right. Judy chopping the throat to you. Yeah. Man, uh, this thing is low. Well, you're, I'm you're, bending over. You're sagging. Here, let me, tighten, let me tighten you up there. I appreciate that. Get it where you want it. Oh, yeah. Is that oh, better? Oh, yeah. That's much better. Yeah, I appreciate okay. That. Yeah, you got levels now. Yay. Uh, anything else before we fire into this uh, fantastic discussion topic? Yes, indeed. Let me let me throw this at you guys. You guys know this uh, this kind of comes at a, a sounds real traditionalist and a little bit frou frou initially, but hear me out and check this out. I had an interesting uh, ev- uh, evening last night. We had a, uh, a mahjong game, as I tend to play from time to time, over at a friend of ours' house. And um, my kid got sick and it was nasty. But before all that went down, I went out on patio and was looking up at the beautiful skies bright bright moon and um looked really cool and right literally underneath that moon, wow what just flew over <laughs> i think that was the moon <laughs> there, <laughs> there were uh three clouds underneath the moon and it was so cool because they were all like three white little stripes and for those of you kind of uh china files uh sign of uh out there um, that basically is uh, three yang stripes in an I Ching kind of way, and uh, which would be Tai Yang or Great Yang. And the moon represents Yin or Tai Yin, you know. And so it was interesting. It made a hexagram in its own little symbolic way of uh, Yin, Great Yin over Great Yang. And so this morning when I was teaching my class, I took that actual principle as the idea for my class. And I said, you know what, let's focus right now. All my guys are working on basically – picking one movement out of five and, and each person has to become awesome at it and train it a thousand different ways, you know? 
And I said, today's class, that's what we're going to do is focus on the strength and the juice, the yang energy, if you would, in your legs, the lower part of your body, and have all your juice come from there. And the hands, just let them be kind of light and airy, if you would, but have them be an expression of the of the force that you're generating down from your legs, you know, and through the waist and all that good stuff. And it, it really uh, came out to be a nice class when we did a gazillion different apps on certain movements and just thought I'd share that with you guys. You know, if you're, if you're training a certain move and you've hit a plateau, you know, and you can't derive any inspiration from anywhere, you know, it could be from anything is something as silly as seeing a moon in a couple of clouds. That's what did it for me. Yeah. Well, you know, on one level, some of the symbolism and stuff attached to martial arts seems silly in the harsh light of the modern world. Right. But you know, when you're talking about something that, uh, you have to keep working on over time. It's not, uh, as Jeff Westfall put it in one of his segments, it's not akin to climbing a mountain where you reach the top and you're done. It's more like mowing the yard. Wow. Uh, so that almost makes you want to say hi. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, anyway, uh, you know, you need fresh inspiration to keep at these things and wherever you can derive it, whether it's from, you know, the symbolism contained in your system or the natural world or whatever. Take it for what it is, people. As long yeah. as it keeps you working, it's a good thing. Great inspiration. Yeah. Well, shoot. On that note, um, why don't we go ahead and retire to the Champagne Lounge for a minute and imbibe some inspiration and come back and and uh, tackle the mastery. Sounds good. I can't believe we got all the way through that without a Bates joke, but <laughs> whoops. <laughs> <laughs> folks we are back yes we are thank you master dave for adjust that mic so people can hear what the hell you're doing what am i so, doing turn turn your chair around a little bit so so you're talking to me instead of the wall over i, I like that wall now you're peeking <laughs> all right <clears throat> folks bear with us we're gonna pull it together we are one naked bear we're a bareback riding bear excellent, excellent. you know what what we're trying to recreate a discussion topic here and we're, we're already off on the wrong foot we can't get organized that's fine i think we need some help hang on dave's dave's doing what i i would call pulling a ninja on craig dave did not tell me about this but evidently we have a third party coming into the room i am totally unawares but i am wearing underwear i'll just just clarify 
That's you, Dave? <clears throat> That's me, Jeff. <laughs> That's me. Jeff Westfall. Hey. Jeff, what's going on? <laughs> Let's, Craig, readjust your seat so he can hear you on the microphone over here. All right, hold on. <clears throat> We're going to have to move things around in here. Sorry, brother. I did get your uh, contact thing. I just didn't have my Skype set up to recognize it. Not a problem. And, uh, of course, I wanted to ambush Craig. <laughs> so I couldn't make a big deal out of looking for it. <laughs> so, uh... <clears throat> Uh, listeners out there, we're we're on mic now, Jeff. Right. Just so you know. Um, oh, I sound uh, pretty good. Talk a little bit more. Why, hello, hi. This is Jeff Westfall. Nice. <laughs> there nice. we go. All right, you're sounding good. Um, yeah. So, uh, uh, Rich Little, my co-host back here, he's going to try to do an impersonation of that. I, I do need <laughs> Okay. So. Jeff, we've uh, asked you in to help us out with a discussion topic and also just to find out a little bit more about you since you've been uh, contributing material to the show recently. Yeah, this is, this is really too funny how Dave did this because I was just today in our, in our champagne lounge saying, hey, you need to contact Jeff and, and ask him, is he getting some you know, feedback from our listeners and all that? And if not, we need to kind of put it to our listeners a little bit again. He's like, oh, I might, I might, I might. <laughs> he played ninja on me. He really did. <clears throat> yep, and I'm pretty pleased with myself. <laughs> so, Jeff, before we dive into any sort of discussion topic or anything, why don't you, uh, why don't you go ahead and tell everybody out there in listener land uh, about yourself, you know, what, what you do, how you got to be where you are. Give us a little bio. Okay. Um, I've been, I'm... Uh, Jeff Westfall, I run the Rising Phoenix Martial Arts Academy in Evansville, Indiana, which nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> and um, I've uh, been in the martial arts since 1971. I started when I was negative 10. <laughs> <laughs> yep, uh, we buy that. <laughs> yeah, anyway, uh, I, was, uh, I was 13 years old, and um, I, I was too poor to do uh, commercial martial arts, plus my mom forbade me to practice commercial martial arts. So I started out in a buddy's backyard, like so many people do. But, but uh, what got me interested in it was, you know, three years earlier, or four or five years earlier, when Cato was on the Green Hornet. That's how old I am. <laughs> oh, yeah. 1967, I was 10 years old watching Cato on the Green Hornet. And uh, that was just, that was the shit as far as I was concerned. Oh, yeah. And then in 71, I saw Bruce Lee on the premiere episode of Longstreet. Wow, nice. Which was, which was entitled The Way of the Intercepting Fist, and huh. that, that was it. You know, that, I was done. And I got into uh, karate lessons and eventually got into some more formal lessons and irritated the hell out of my teacher by constantly asking him about things that Bruce Lee said. <laughs> <laughs> that still goes on to this day. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> and um, as time went on, I, uh, I got more into Gong Fu. There was a gentleman named Chi Kyung Lee that uh, taught a system called Tai Lung Gong Fu that I got involved in and um, eventually uh, started teaching in 1975 and uh, taught uh, just privately in my mom's garage, basements and, you know, places where you wouldn't take your girlfriend to have sex. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, so long as it was your basement, I would though. <laughs> I was about to say, you don't know Craig very well. <laughs> as far as he knows, I wasn't in his basement. That's right. But if Dave can pull one over on you, maybe I can too. There you go. But uh, anyway, uh, uh, I, uh, I gradually got a little more commercial. I, I landed a, a buddy of mine was uh, teaching also the same art, Tai Lung Gung Fu, and 
he and I kind of threw in together and we had academies together for a couple of years and had fallings out and fallings in with each other, you know, the, the usual political bullshit that goes on. And, um, then, uh, in, uh, I was, you know, after 1984, I'd been running an academy commercially for about five years and I decided to go finally go to a seminar and I went to a Dan in Osanto seminar in St. Louis and that completely wrecked everything I was doing. I bet. Yeah. And, uh, and it was, it was amazing, and it uh, started a whole new path in my martial arts career, and I started following him around all over the Midwest every time he appeared somewhere. And, and as the years went by, I've just continued to uh, uh, diversify my martial arts portfolio, trying to learn everything I could in all the styles I thought were interesting. And uh, here I am now in uh, 2013 running an academy, and I teach Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Muay Thai and Junfan Kung Fu and... Dan Osano's martial art of Majapa Hit and uh, Filipino martial arts, and I'm having a great time. Sweet. Awesome. So the, uh, the, the Tai Long dropped out of the picture completely at that point? Yeah, pretty much. I, I mean, so. I, I don't want to disrespect it. It just, it just got to the point where I was far more interested in the other things I was doing. And by the time I fell into a routine with those things, I had just gotten out of the habit of doing the forms yeah. from the Tai Long Gung Fu. And uh, it just... You know, it fell by the wayside, and I don't mean to disrespect that particular art. It's just where I ended up. Cool, cool. Well, uh, so tell us more about uh, about uh, what you learned from Dan Inosanto. You know, we know he's connected with the the Jun Fon and, and Bruce Lee and all that stuff. But what what is his own art? The uh, say the name for me again. If it's a, he's it's he named it after a, an empire that existed in Southeast Asia in the uh, 1200s, 1300s, and 1400s, and it was called the Majapahit Empire. Okay, I thought that sounded familiar uh, historically. Yeah, right. and it included at one time or another uh, uh, the, the Philippines, what is now Indonesia, what is now Malaysia, what is now Singapore, Southern Thailand, Southern Burma, uh, and a few other you know outlying areas, uh, Southern Vietnam and and, and uh, Cambodia. And so he felt when he started putting together his own Jeet Kune Do, if you will, that, that he really liked the martial arts of Southeast Asia. And it gave him sort of a, a way of naming what he did without offending any of his teachers. One of the things that he has amazed me, at, not only at uh, his martial arts skills, but his ability to navigate the political crap out there is astonishing. He's able to learn from different people who hate each other and still manages to uh, get them to agree to teach him, if, if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah. It makes pre- that's quite a skill to have, actually. <laughs> He's the best I've ever seen at. And I, I kind of try to emulate that. I don't like to burn bridges and make enemies uh, because, you know, I can always learn something from, from everyone. And that's more – I learned more about that from him even than about martial arts. I mean, let's just take Filipino martial arts, for example. Sure. Um, his, his father was sort of the Cesar Chavez of the Filipino farming community – way back in the 1920s and 30s, in that these Filipino immigrants would come over to the U.S., uh, belonged to different tribes, didn't get along with each other. His dad was this genius that spoke seven languages, and I mean European languages fluently, and 12 Filipino dialects fluently, and managed to sort of herd cats and keep all these separate people getting along with each other in these work camps, made friends with hundreds of people, got them started in the U.S., and, and uh, a lot of these guys turned out later on to be masters of Filipino martial arts. And so in the Filipino community, you're, it's said to be your uncle if it's a man that is done, you, you know, that's very close to your family. And he's fond of saying he's got hundreds of uncles based on what his father did. Right. And so his father, I mean, after he got his black belt in um, 
in uh, Kempo under Ed Parker uh, in the late 50s. Ed Parker approached him and say, said, hey, do you do Filipino martial arts? And he remembered from his childhood seeing these old guys out in the fields practicing with asparagus knives. And he just sort of denigrated them like we all do things from our own culture. Right. And, you know, he said, well, we used to throw dirt clods at those guys when we were little kids. And, <laughs> and we sort of, you know, shook his head and said, you really need to go see what's in your own culture. And he went and he talked to his dad. Turns out his dad was a practitioner and something of a, an instructor of Filipino martial arts, but kind of looked upon his son like a lot of dads look upon their sons as, as kind of, uh, you know, not, not living up to what he wanted him to. And didn't even want to mention anything to him until he showed a little more respect for his own culture, which he did by coming back and asking him about it. And so he said, okay, I'm going to make some introductions for you, but you, know, you, you behave yourself when you're talking to these old guys. And so he said he, he, he went and met these guys, and he, he, they didn't look like martial artists to him. They were wearing Hawaiian shirts and wearing flip-flops and had big stogies in their mouths, and they looked like they weighed about you know, 95 pounds each and teeth missing. And <laughs> I like these guys already. Me too. <laughs> he said you know, they weren't wearing uniforms. They didn't have belts on. What rank are they? And it was, you know, he was so you know, steeped in the traditional uh, American view of, of Asian martial arts that he didn't know what to expect. And these guys just amazed him with their skills, especially with the knife. Um, and, and, and sort of made him feel like an idiot with the things that he had already learned that, uh, he just, he said, well, I was, you know, I was convinced right there. And, uh, uh and his, his dad, uh, then made further introductions. He ended up training with more, more than two dozen of these guys. And I'm not talking about, like he got certifications from all of them to teach and none of them are honorary. Every one of them was time put in, sweat put in with this guy until he said, yeah, you've got it. And that was a process of 40 or 50 years. He's still doing it. So he's able to take these guys that can't be in the room together with each other and learn from them and synthesize together his own, his own approach, which I really admire. And the Filipino part is only part of the Majapahit curriculum. I mean, there's also the Indonesians and there's also the Malaysians and so on. So, uh, and then of course he's kind of carrying on the legacy of Bruce Lee with the Jun Fan Gung Fu. And that's a whole nother political can of worms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Delve into that if you care to. Sure. Sure. Um, you know, right after Bruce Lee died, I mean, that was his best friend, you know, and he was pretty broken up about it. He, he had been running Bruce Lee's academy for him in Chinatown. He's actually the guy who wrote most of the curriculum for what was being taught at the academy. Bruce Lee was usually too busy with his TV and film work. Um, and and Guru, was a, Guru Osando was, a, was an educator. He was a middle school teacher and a coach. He, he coached all kinds of sports. So it came natural to him to write curricula. And Bruce Lee used to sort of tease him and make fun of him about it because, you know, like this is outside of a curriculum. I'm always creating new things. And Guru Dan would say, well, Sifu, you know, we're not all you. We can't all, you know, learn things as fast as you learn. We need more structure. So he sort of imposed a bit of structure on it and used that at the academy. And then when Bruce Lee died overseas, here he was running this academy. And then just his, his friend was gone. His inspiration was gone. He shut it down and just sort of sort of pulled his horns in and, and retired from teaching for a while and just practiced on his own. And then a lot of the students begged him to open an academy. And he finally and reluctantly did because he was worried that people would think he was cashing in on the memory of Bruce Lee. Right. Needless to say, he could have really taken that very far had he, had he so chosen to do. Sure. Um, but he didn't. I mean, he, he kept the Filipino Kali Academy, which is all he called it. He didn't call it the Bruce Lee Jikundo Academy. You know, he opened it up and it was just in a garage and, you know, in a backyard for a long time. I mean, when I was first becoming interested in all this stuff, the only place you could go to train this stuff was L.A. And I was 
hell, I was living in a trailer in Evansville, Indiana. <laughs> you know, a long way from L.A. <laughs> yeah, I was, you know, we were, we were poor. You know, I, I was just a kid, and I, there was no way I was going to get out there. So uh, I didn't think anything would ever come of it. Of course, later on it did. But um, he uh, 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 eventually got wrapped up in some politics because some other people that were students of Bruce Lee's wanted to start to put together a, a political organization and regulate people so that, you know, all these mushroom schools that cropped up claiming to teach Jeet Kune Do could be uh, sort of exposed for what they were. And uh, uh, Guru Anasano went to the first meeting of this group and he said, you know, I, I see what you're trying to do, but it kind of goes against everything Bruce Lee stood for to sort of try to put this in a box and label what it is and what it isn't. And uh, he said, so, you know, thanks, but no thanks, guys, go ahead and, you know, you know bless you, do whatever you think is good for what's going on, but I'm going to follow my own path. And so they, at that point, really, to a large extent, the Bruce Lee martial arts world split into two groups. And a lot of uh, when you sort of the code sometimes that you'll hear is that someone teaches Jun Fan slash Jeet Kune Do concepts. And that's sort of our branch, the Dan and Osano branch. And then the other guys call what they do Jeet Kune Do. Okay. Uh, so it's, you know, who knows? it really doesn't matter. It's a bunch of political silliness. But uh, uh, that's part of what ensued there. And sometimes Dan Osano is accused by the other group of, of not teaching the original Jeet Kune Do because he has, in addition to continuing to, to teach Bruce Lee's art, he has branched out tremendously through the years, as I've mentioned, in, in other areas too, you know, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, Muay Thai. I mean, yeah. well, uh, and, wasn't and that he, the whole point of what Bruce Lee was trying to do? I mean, isn't it obvious? That, <laughs> yeah. Isn't it obvious that Seafood Bruce would be spinning in his grave at, you know, you know, high RPMs if he could even hear this? It's just ridiculous. You know, so anyway, it's just it's, it's so silly. It just doesn't even, you know, doesn't even uh, doesn't even need to be dignified with a, a treatment Response. beyond just it's silly. Right. So, and I'm, I'm sure there's there's good training going on, on on both sides of the aisle. It's just, you know, it's just trying to stuff, especially Bruce Lee's, you know, philosophy into a box just does seem pretty counterintuitive to me. Exactly. Um, well, all right. Uh, we'll talk more about uh, some of this stuff in a little bit, but uh, would you care to just dive on into this little discussion topic with us? Because you had one of the segments you had sent me for use on the show was about what is a master. And I have intentionally not listened to it because we had already uh, had in the back burner that we were going to do a discussion topic on that very subject. So maybe we can just go ahead and integrate those ideas uh, into this conversation. I have one thing to say to you. Okay. Aya. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, when I say who to master, what do you say? Aya <laughs> <laughs> again is appropriate. Yes, um, indeed. Okay. Um, well, let me let me go ahead and sort of get get the uh, ball rolling. Get the ball rolling here. Let's look at what the actual definition of the word is, because this is a Western, you know, this is an English word. This is not a direct translation. Yes. Yeah. So sometimes it may be misapplied in translation to, to Asian systems, but let's see what it means in English. And I'm just going to give a couple of primary definitions. And I'll say right up front that one of these is one that I approve of for use in the martial arts. And the other one is one that I do not. <laughs> we'll see if we can guess which one is which. Um. So the first one I will use uh, is uh, on an artist, performer, or player of consummate skill, a great figure of the past, as in science or art, whose work serves as a model or ideal, um, or uh, you know, one who is. Uh, hold on, let me get it here. 
Basically one who is uh, qualified in an art and good enough to teach it to someone else. All right. Um, the other definition is uh, one having authority over another, such as a ruler or a governor, one right. that conquers or masters a victor, an employer, especially of a servant or a slave or an owner of an animal. Uh, so it only to me. That's right. <laughs> you or me when on your off days. <laughs> So I think there's some confusion out there right off the bat when people see terms like uh, uh, sensei or shurfu translated as master. Sure, sure. That uh, it should, uh, you know, which one of these should it mean? I oh. definitely don't think it should mean the, you know, the master-slave relationship. But I think some people who adopt the title think that it entitles them to that. Thoughts, anyone? Well, yeah, you see that all over the internet, too. A lot of times... Maybe not so much today as you did a few years back, but where people say, you know, I just can't get into XYZ school because they're asking me to adopt this title or to, uh, you know, with the teacher-student relationship. I, I'm not bowing down to anybody and nobody's, you know, I don't want to be subservient and so on and so forth. And it's like, yeah, either you and or that teacher just got the whole ball wrong, man. I don't know. Other comments? <clears throat> Yeah, yeah I mean, it really comes down to semantics, doesn't it? I mean, don't don't sensei and sifu and shurfu actually mean teacher when translated, not master? Um, sensei pretty much would translate as teacher. Shurfu is more like, uh, it's more of a familial thing, more like father teacher. Uh, yeah. Laosher would be the, the Chinese more directly for teacher. I see. And, uh, you know, nope. there is, let's go ahead and throw out some other words that are used here, like... Uh, uh, guru or guru, you know, guru, guru and guru, and, and also in Thai, in Muay Thai, the term is crew, yeah. which is nothing but a distortion of guru. Um, they all mean teacher, right? So, um, that that leads that leads me to look into, and I'll just say up front here, yeah, the definition I agree of is is master, as in master tape. You know, it's an original from which copies can be made, right? Oh, nice. <laughs> it's yeah. a it's a quality original, and it's able to self propagate. Well, how about Big Boy and Papa? Pause. Yeah. Come Pause. Pause. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you totally lost me on that one, but it's not the first time. Hey, it'll happen. Uh, thank you. Are you talking about atomic bombs over there or something? Uh, I think that's Little Boy and Fat Man, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think you're right, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I should know that. I'm from Oak Ridge. Um, oh. So, uh, you know, in, in, in Japan, the martial arts are set up sort of like uh, maybe a, a paramilitary or a uh, educational, like being in a, in a university or something, a system like that, where you have, you know, a sensei who is a teacher and... Uh, you know the terminology. We won't we won't get too deep into it. But uh, uh, when you move on to uh, the Chinese arts, you have less of a less of a scholarly or a paramilitary sort of organization to the schools. But they, you know, in in the past anyway, have mostly tended towards a familiar organization where you know your your shifu is your father teacher, your fellow students are little or big brothers and sisters. You have kung fu uncles, and uh, Craig, I think, has some material on this. Why don't, let's just focus in on that real quick so we can get an idea of sort of the depth of how it works in one of these systems. Yeah, Craig. just to, to give you a, a basic rundown, I guess, um, shurfu, or sifu, as it's you know, more commonly pronounced in the Cantonese, um, the, the first half of that, si or, or shur, comes from lao shur or lo si, which means teacher, literally, or old 
teacher. Um, and then fu, as in sifu or shifu, uh, comes from the word fu qin, which literally means father, uh, father proper, uh, you know, as opposed to daddy or papa or anything Baba, like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and just to, to give you an example, like your teacher's wife, if you're in a, a kung fu school, you know, she's the big momish. So she is simo uh, or shermu, which literally comes from mu qin, which means mother. So it's the same thing there. It's teacher mother, even though she might not. Uh, be anything more than the chick that pops in and says, well, your money, you pay up. You know, it might, <laughs> might just be that chick, but there's a lot of respect and honor in, in that same thing. But it's it's definitely a, a familial thing. Um, as with most Asian cultures, you know, when you meet an older uh, person, an, an older male, usually, um, you know, and somebody who you respect, you call them uncle, uh, whether you're in martial arts or not, and you call auntie for, for um, you know, the females and that kind of thing. And that entire um, ideology and terminology crossed over into the Chinese martial arts world. And so you have Sibak, well, you know, for uh, my teacher's older brother type thing. Um, you have a lot of different terminology, but it all is based off of a family system. Um, again, from, you know, like a Thai, you know, you might have Tai Sibak, you know, a great uh, uncle or grand uncle, you know, or Sisok, um, which would be, you know, kind of a younger uncle, you know, Sisok Gong, like uh, in Chinese they say Gong Gong or, or Akong for grandfather or granddad. And you'll find the Gong um, coming into terminology as well, you know, Si Tai Gong uh, or, or Shi Tai Gong, uh, which, which means kind of great great grandfather in a martial sense you know or my sigong sifu you know so there's it's um there's a, tons and tons of official titles but they're all based off of a family yeah. and, and every system has its own you know inherent pitfalls like for instance in the chinese way of doing things i think there's a bit of a risk especially with westerners that are getting sort of imperfect translations of these concepts in combination with the ancestor veneration that's part of, you know, traditional Chinese culture, right. to think that, you know, uh, what they hear translated as great-grandmaster, which to the Chinese teacher may mean something closer to great-grandfather in the system. Mm -hmm. uh, the Western ear may hear that as, this guy is so great, he's twice as great as any living master. So his <laughs> skills must have been tiptoeing along bamboo shoots, you know? Right. Kind of <laughs> like what I do or you do. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, uh, paired along <laughs> with their unclear, you know, Confucian ethics and stuff like that. But yeah. Pipe in, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, as, on a, as, a, as a side note, you know, uh, Bruce Lee was often accused of being quite the uh, iconoclast and anti-traditional, but he actually required his students to memorize all of those terms for for seniors and juniors uh, uh, familiar relationships within the system. I was required to learn in C. Joe, C. Dai, C. Right. Mo, and all the different terms. So he, he actually had a, a great reverence for the traditions of martial arts, of Chinese martial arts. Yeah, I, you know, I think he, he thought things were getting a little hidebound. And, and uh, you know, again, the, the sort of bickering and infighting between clans and, and different schools that you were talking about that, that Mr. Inosanto had to face when he was dealing in, in that realm. One of the beautiful things about, you know, the cross-culturalism of the modern age is just getting a little distance from that puts it all in perspective for the next generation. And so while they don't feel like they have to give up the good things about the art or the systematic organization or anything like that, they can, they can broaden their view to, 
you know, kind of get back to the all men are brothers concept. <laughs> you know, in, in another sense, uh, the European martial arts, especially fencing, I mean, the, the fencing master was a, was a fixture in Renaissance Europe. Yeah. Uh, but I think master more along the lines of, um, uh, we would think of apprentice, journeyman, and master. Good call. Yeah, that fit right in with the the sort of guild systems that were in practice in most trades at the time. You know, it was, uh, and again, that falls into sort of that second definition where a master is just someone who's good enough to operate independently and produce quality students. Well, they've mastered an art. Yeah. I mean, using it as a verb, you know, type thing rather than as just simply a title of respect. They've they've done something with it. And it's something that you... You don't get to call yourself. You've, you know, someone else tells you, you know, hey, he mastered this, master so and so. You know, I like that. I like that. Insofar as you can't call yourself, because to me, mastering something almost sounds like you've reached the top of the mountain. There's no higher to climb. And I, I like to think of martial arts training as a process, and not a product. So the process is only over when they nail me in a box. And so I, I never master. <laughs> you know? But uh, but if someone else wants to use that term, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, and it means a lot more. Like, uh, I think the, is it a Filipino term, pendakar? Uh, that's Indonesian. Indonesian, yeah. right. That can only be bestowed by the community or by the government, like being knighted in Britain. It's not something you can just go out and start calling yourself. Right. Or a hot model chick. I mean, just think about this. You sure look like a master to me, baby. <laughs> well, that's the public, Craig. Mm-hmm. Craig's got a one-track mind, if you hadn't noticed, Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, so, like, for instance, uh, you know, you're not too bound. You teach so many different arts that you're not too bound to fall into any one category of organization. You know, how do do you, uh, how does the hierarchy work at your school, for instance? Well, um, I basically bow to the tradition of whichever art it is I'm teaching at the time. So uh, if, if I'm teaching a Muay Thai class, I ask them to call me Kun Kru, which is basically it's Kru is what a lot of Muay Thai schools use, and it, it means teacher. But my teacher taught me that just to say Kru is a little bit like saying, hey, yo, teach. It's, yeah. it's a little disrespectful. So they say Kun Kru, which is like saying Mr. Teacher or Honor Teacher. Right. Uh, although that's – I just in uh, July was promoted to Ajarn, which is the next level. Oh, and wow. I, whatever. So um, anyway uh, – uh, in, in, in the uh, Filipino martial arts, you know, guru, and in, uh, in the Junfan class, it's, it's Sifu. So uh, I just, you know, bow to whatever it is that we're doing, not because I like to be called some fancy title, but I'm trying to show respect for the art that I'm teaching and maintain its structures. Sure. And, you know, if, if, if students are studying, you know, multiple systems with you, do you ever have confusion where they don't know what to call you or what they should call themselves and their fellow students? Not, not at all. I mean, that's, that's really not even a factor. They get confused. They just say, "Hey, Mr. Westmore." You know, oh, right. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I mean, that's, I don't. I don't want that to be even a factor. You know, it's it's the way I look at it is this: uh, overt disrespect is pretty obvious. You know, yeah. someone, someone making a mistake, calling me by the whatever wrong means, you know, wrong term. As long as, as long as they're showing respect, I really don't care. You know, I mean, it's. it's I, I want to show respect to the arts that I teach without being bound by chains of uh, of. Uh, ridiculous tradition you know i, I want to honor the good parts of the tradition without i don't want to import all the hatreds towards different styles that, that styles bring here i mean one thing that really amazes me about americans practicing martial arts is that because a lot of uh, koreans 
rightfully so, you know, hate the Japanese maybe because of some of the things that happened to them. Yeah, there's bad blood there. <laughs> Between 1910 and 1945, uh, you know, they, they teach their students sometimes to hate ja uh, students of Japanese martial arts, which is ridiculous. You know, it's or like the Americans who speak in broken English when they teach because they like their teacher so much they emulate their bad habits as well as their good habits. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I, I like to... I like to to uh, maintain the the tradition insofar insofar as the parts that I like, but I'm I'm not going to try to get my students to uh, you know if they're practicing Filipino martial arts to uh, hate the Spaniards, for example. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like from my perspective, uh, most of my teachers and the things that I stuck with for a long period of time have uh, been. Americans like me, right? You know, they're Westerners, even if they're teaching me a Chinese martial art or whatever. And none of them have been very hung up on the terminology or anything like that, or, you know, developing a master complex. So I've always been very careful not to do that myself. And I actually, you know, people call me Dave in my classes. I can tell respect from disrespect by their behavior and the way they talk to me. I don't need the honorifics so much. I also teach a very small classes, so it's not as much of a problem to keep organization that way. Um, and I'm often leery of the guy that comes in and starts calling me master or Sifu right off the bat because I know he's got some, probably some unrealistic expectations in the back of his mind and may have seen too many movies, you know? Oh, yeah. And those are usually the people that don't stick around for long. So I'm always, my radar kind of goes off. I'm like, oh, I got to keep an eye on this one because he's all master this and master that. It's like, you know, you should, you should wait until you've at least seen if I'm any good before you start doing that, you know? <laughs> don't those guys creep you out that start taking classes from you and just... They really want to make it clear to you just how dedicated they're going to be. Man, I am going to totally commit myself. Well, I'm those are the ones that usually drop off the fastest, <laughs> to be honest. But I, they also freak me out a little bit, too. Yeah, know, yeah. I'm with you. I've had uh, at least three times, honestly, in my teaching career where I've had to give a, a lecture, you know, not pointing fingers, but just explaining that you do not actually even get to call me Sifu until I let you know that I have accepted you as my student. Because even though, you know, it is familial, you know, you have to be welcomed into the quote-unquote family. Other than that, you're simply a student. You're not um, part of the quote-unquote family. Um, the old open-door, closed-door sort yeah, of system. Yeah, and that's... I'm a Craig impression now. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. <laughs> indeed, no, I, indeed. I really like that. I like that a lot. Right. So um, I don't know. I, are, are there any thoughts that you had in your segment on this? And, you know, I can play it if you want me to. But since we've got you on about this very subject, you know, what was, what was the gist of, of your little segment, uh, What is a Master? Well, like I uh, talk about quite a, quite a bit in some of the segments I record, you know, language is – is an amazing thing, and yet at the same time, like humans, language is an amazing thing and a, and a frequently disappointing thing because people abuse it so much. And, and so I was really dealing to a large extent with the abuses of the term master and especially how a lot of fly-by-night guys really carry it way too far. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, and then, then you start talking about, you see guys that are 30 years old that claim to be a grandmaster, you know, and, and, I, and, I, and as a matter of fact, on my, on my uh, comment, the last... I sort of hit a punchline at the end, and I go, now don't even get me started about Grandmaster. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, uh, it's, to a large extent, I just talk about uh, how I really 
and it, it really agrees with what you said. If, if by master you mean teacher, then it, then you know we're we're on the same page. But if you mean you know someone that it, that it can't be defeated, you know, or is it has reached some platonic form of martial arts perfection? Yeah, I'm not there with you at all. Or is entitled to treat you like a slave and make you, you know, tar yes. the roof of their house and do all this other stuff without pay just to be part of the group. Well, it's the word underling in the uh, in the commentary, as a matter of fact. Right. <laughs> and I, I, yeah, I got to say, like you mentioned, when you have a 30 year old guy, you know, who says he's grandmaster, and you see this all over the internet, all over internet, you know, the ads and stuff like that. It's so annoying because. To me, honestly, it really devalues and cheapens the word. Yeah, we don't use the word master frequently because it is a very special thing. It's what somebody else gives you because you've mastered something. For you to use it, and honestly, most of the time that I've seen it, you know, here in the States, a self-appointed master, they usually suck balls. I apologize for saying it, but I, I mean it. And, and it's like, come on, man, you know, I don't know. It just ticks me off. I'm right there with you, and uh, I'm, I'm already, I'm kind of a nerd about words and linguistics. It's one of my real pet peeves is, is people who, uh, word inflation and, you know, and, and sort of dilution over time drives me crazy. Awesome. Uh, take it easy there, Stephen Pinker. It's like the word awesome, <laughs> right? <laughs> exactly. Like, like a, a good example is, uh, is unique. It drives me crazy when people say, he's really unique. I mean, oh, there's yeah. No, there's no degree of uniqueness. Something is either unique or it's not. Qualifying you know? unique is one of my biggest pet peeves <laughs> one of my favorites is also ultimate because yeah. it actually really means last yeah yep. you know and, and people use it nowadays to mean best Greatest, you know and, yeah. and they have the word penultimate which means next to last <laughs> they say it like it's like he's it's really, further than he's ultimate an ultimate fighter of his day and it just means <laughs> next to last as a matter of fact one more thing on this i was at the uh at the uh, sam's club with my wife and there was this product i couldn't even tell you what it was but the product name was Premier Ultimate, whatever it was. <laughs> First, <laughs> last. And ultimate means it was it was a semantic nullity. It meant nothing. And I was just I'm, here. I am ranting in the aisle. My wife is standing there, rolling her eyes, waiting for me to finish my rant. I finally sort of exhausted it, and we went on about our way. But that's how picky I am about language. And then, of course, martial arts is so important to me. And when this part of martial arts language is abused, it just drives me crazy. I hear you. I get the same way about the word awesome, you know, it's, it, it's been happening since the 80s or whatever, and it's like, really, you are fooled of awe because of the way that guy dropped his spoon. That's awesome <laughs> in its own respect. Yeah, well, I mean, as long as we're on the subject, I, I kind of, I, I get pestered by that too, and one of the things about doing a podcast is I'm appalled when I listen to myself speak later in a lot of cases because I'm umming and awing and really just making a butchery out of out of the language but you know if 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 you don't take the time to be a little bit sophisticated with your language then your ideas are stuck in a place where you can't be sophisticated about them either the sophisticated you know words have meaning and you can't just you know there's fine gradations of meaning between different words that people will just use interchangeably and stuff like that and it really makes it difficult to communicate higher ideas yes perfectly well put well, when I listen back to it, I'm sure it's going to sound stupid, but thank you. <laughs> so long as we agree, magic and science are the exact same things. All right. <laughs> you two to one, Craig. Don't get us started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always try. You're tipping the line here, buddy. I always try. <laughs> 
So, right. you know, I, I think we've cleaned shop on this topic pretty much more quickly than we did last time, actually. But um, uh, any final thoughts on this, guys? Well, I think that uh, so long as it's just like anything else, when you talked about it's the, it's the, uh, the spirit behind the word. I mean, so long as, as uh, the, the meaning that's obvious behind it is, is the right meaning or at least a meaning that's not abusive, I don't have a problem with it. I just have a problem with people who abuse it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the last thing I would say on the subject is, you know, I'm sure most of our high out listeners out there are pretty savvy martial artists. But if you're someone who's new to the game, you know, tread very lightly around uh, great grandmasters and people with flamboyant and puffed up titles. It's usually, you know, the the ones who say don't know and the ones who know don't say. Uh, the, the, the dude just went Lao Tzu on us, by the way. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But, you know, the, the more puffing that's going on, probably the less substance is there. Now, there are some egomaniacs who are also fantastic martial artists. You can't discount that. But, but they also need to be good teachers if that's what you're looking for. And, you know, that's where the alarm bells there's, should go off. There's one other aspect I just wanted to ding on um, real quickly on this is to understand, you know, if, if somebody's being called a master or a grandmaster is to understand who – kind of gave them that title the reason i say this uh for example you know i'm a proponent of northern shaolin and one of the unique uh, here you go unique uh features of our of our system is that we do not have a lineage succession program uh, which is very uh different uh from most chinese styles there is not uh, ever since you know gu yu chong he never came out and said okay you're the next guy and this is you're the, you're the appointed holder of this entire yeah. style of martial arts. Not unique, but very unusual. Yeah. Just duel to the death? Well, no. yeah. Until there's only one teacher left. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so it's interesting. There, there's basically been uh, guys who have been in the public's eye more so than other people. And so you'll, you'll find several people in our system being referred to as master and grandmaster this and grandmaster that. And I often have to tell my students over and over that, well, technically, no, they're not really the what I would consider grandmaster being the the guy who owns the system, if you would, at this point in time. No, that doesn't happen. But what I can say is the reason he's being referred to this is because this promotion is being done by such and such, which is his one of his students' students, if you would. And so... That's one of those things. It's more out of veneration, um, and yet it can be misleading to the general populace. And so I think it's, you know, I come back to what you were saying, Jeff, in that uh, language. It's it's a dangerous thing. Yeah, it, it conveys emotion, a personal thing, but at the same time, uh, when it goes out into the broader sphere of the public, you know, it can be misleading. That that kind of touches on a, a commentary that I've, I've got sitting on my iPod right now. It's going to be the next one I record, and that's on the word style as it applies to martial arts, what the heck is a style? And mm-hmm. I do minutes on that, on, on this, this, this particular one. And, you know, by, by even describing it as a situation where there needs to be a successor, to me almost describes a style as if it's a possession that needs to be owned. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and to me, a style is really nothing more than a curriculum and a program that someone designed. And it doesn't much matter to me if the guy is legit or illegitimate, you know, as far as uh, his, his credentials, if I like the way he teaches it, and he teaches it, it seems to make sense. But uh, so much is, is, is so much effort and energy is put in, in some of some styles and who is going to be the successor, who's going to be the next guy, like, like it's some bone to be chewed over. 
it, I don't know. It's just no, so much. People stuff. die over that junk, man. Of course, especially more in the past than now. Yeah. yeah I agree. When, when martial arts was, was sort of military secrets, maybe that made more sense. But, hell, this is the information age. Yeah, you know? true. Yeah, exactly. And I, I just I find that it. That's part of the reason I discourage the use of much uh, hierarchical terminology in my classes because I just think at this point in history it muddies the waters. There's really, you know, and you know, my instructor didn't bestow any sort of title on me. Just at some point when I learned the whole system and he thought my skills were adequate, he said, "Okay, you can teach," and that's the only title I ever bestow on any of my students. It's like, okay, you're at a point where you can start teaching new people you know you know the system well enough that you can i trust you to pass it along (laughs) yes and you know above and beyond that i want to see it grow and change it's not like the way i do it you know the way my teacher taught me would change over time i was with him long enough to watch him do things differently from one year to the next and the way i teach changes over time it's not like you know, there's we're not fighting to get a hold of this brass ring, and it's the ultimate secret. You know, it's <laughs> this is a growth thing, and it's all about keeping it open enough and uh, keeping enough communication and interaction going on between the students within a style and and within other and between them and other styles that the you know the art can grow and change and flourish. You know, right, right. Well, that kind of ties in with something uh, that sort of seems obvious to me. And that is that almost all styles were started by somebody, somebody who was pissing off a lot of other people by changing what he did so much that people thought he was, quote, betraying, unquote, his style. So some young iconoclast comes along, starts a new way of doing things, attracts young students because young students are more likely to, to be attracted to something like that, pisses off a lot of the old guys. But right. then 30 years later when he dies, and, and uh, the guys who follow him carve everything into stone, turn it into almost a religion. And within 100 years, it's exactly the kind of style that he was breaking away from when he started his own thing. And this cycle must, must be repeated, surely, for the last thousands of years over and over and over and over again. Yeah. It's almost like we're not learning the lesson of it every time it happens, if we're not careful. Yeah, no, it's the danger of, you know, being, a, a, even if well-intentioned, of being such a charismatic person that you can start your own style and attract followers. You know, Plus, humans are such tribal creatures. Yeah, now, we, we, we want to form little cadres because you know, originally we're hunter-gatherers. We're more comfortable in a social unit. So we'll, we'll make an ad hoc social unit any way we can. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the logical progression from where you got with that, which is, you know, the iconoclast gets the students and becomes the, the new grandmaster and they carve everything in stone. Within another generation, they're all splitting up and saying, no, I've got the true transmission. No, I've got the true transmission. <laughs> and uh, Like Brian? Uh, Life of Brian, yeah. <laughs> Remember, yeah. His, the religion is only five minutes old, and he's running down the street trying to get away from these people who want to follow him. They they say, "Lead us!" And he says, "He's running away." He drops a shoe and a gourd. Yeah, that's he has, a he has, great program. Two groups: one with the shoe is the way, and then with no, the gourd is the way. Heresy! <laughs> they're killing each other five minutes after the beginning of the religion. You know, that's you know, a wonderful program. Martial arts styles when the when the founder dies. You know. Oh at yeah. The, at the same time, I think I think uh, some of the issues you know resolve in three areas. Obviously, just kind of we all kind of suck and miss the whole point then there's the teacher trying to um you know make sure that the students uh, get the fact that it's the principles i mean everybody that we've interviewed and we've talked to and stuff like that we all agree whether you're form based kata based or whatever it's still 
really principle based because uh, you'd never That's fight exactly. using a form. You you see a principle and you react using a principle. You know, it's all it really is um, using the movements you've been trained. But the other thing is, and this sucks and it's hard, you know, but a lot of it does rely on the student. So many times I, I try and teach over and over and over a principle heavy thing, and yet they're really like, they really need that structure though of, uh, yeah, but I need to know what I do here. I need to know move A, so to speak. I need to know the correct movement. I hear that frequently all the time. I'm like, it, I can give it to you, but at the same time, that's not really the answer, you know? It's And it's tough. It really is. It really is tough. We have that curriculum, but it's principles. If I'm reading you correctly, it's what I call a baseline of experience, mm-hmm. where, you know, it, like students will often tell me, hey, I, I want to I want to practice at home, but I'm scared that I'll practice it wrong. So I only want to practice while you're standing there watching me. Right. And I tell them that's that's kind of silly because, first of all, I can't be around you 24-7. You need to be practicing, and you shouldn't worry too much about it because while you're practicing, you're going to, you're going to especially if you're mindful of each repetition, you're going to feel what each repetition feels like. You may not know whether it's right or wrong, but you'll become familiar with your body feel as you're doing it, and you'll be able to ask me intelligent questions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as you're teaching your students, even though the you know, the form may not be, be doing exactly what you want for them at first. At least it's giving them a baseline of experience to give you a springboard to begin teaching them. Yeah, and uh, that ties back in with our discussion topic here because one of the funny things about mastery, if we take it to that level, is it can't be transmitted. You can transmit techniques or philosophies or principles, but mastery is something you uh, of a technique or a system or something is entirely on the individual doing the practicing. Yeah, it's just like good hair. You know, it's it, mastery of scales. If you're learning how to play a piano or a guitar, or mastery of tech, you know, it comes from your own repetition, your own exploration. You know, you're, it's, it's all down to you. Your teacher cannot do any of that for you, whether they're a master or a grandmaster. They can't slap that label from them to you. You have to earn it for yourself. <laughs> I, I like that. That reminds me of, I'm, I'm writing a book that I'll probably never finish on teaching martial arts. And um, one of the things in the preface that I describe is that a martial arts teacher is sort of a mixture of four or five different things, or I try to draw analogies. And one of them is a wilderness guide. You know, and he's, he's going to walk along with you for part of the trip, but he might point down in the valley and go, there's some cool stuff down there. You might want to go check it out, but he's not going to put you on his back and carry you there. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's, and it's, it just struck me as it's, because really all, well, to a large extent, that's what we are. We're guides, you know, but we can't make the journey for them. Absolutely. Well, um, Jeff, I tell you what, I think we have sort of wrapped up this discussion topic. Uh, do you have time to hang out in the Champagne Lounge and finish the show out with us, or do you need to go? No, I'm good. All right. Well, folks, uh, it's my turn to spin the disco ball, and uh, everybody stop dancing. So we're going to slip out to the Champagne Lounge for just a minute, and we'll be right back to finish out the show. Like tag team, back again. Here we go with a flow. Get dealt with quick now, Joe. I know my rap style flow. Let them know with the quickness. Y'all need to witness. Step to the side. Y'all mind y'all business. Exercise like physical fitness. Ride through. I glide through bass. Pump to the trunks inside you. We move it quickly. Rap style swift beat. Cadillac rolling. Neck full of golden. Crafty, nasty. Can't put it past me. Set with skills. Better call your family. Turn first words. Climbing the first verse. Moving the back it up. Attacking the smack it up. Girls connecting it. More selection and Why y'all rhyme so? Fruity affectionate.
have this up in the Hey, Jeff, so just out of curiosity, have you had a chance to get out to Southeast Asia yet? Out to Philippines, maybe? or I've never been out of the U.S. Oh, man, you got to do it. I'm sure with your background and some of those arts and stuff, you'd absolutely love it. I'd love it. I know I would. You know, you want to hear something interesting. Dan in Osanto has never been to the Philippines. Wow, that is weird. But I guess all his teachers have come exactly. here. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you know how it is. The much of the best martial arts training in the world is with. Yes, indeed. Yeah, the diaspora. That's right. And in every art, the, you know where the number one place in the world to learn Brazilian jiu-jitsu is right now? America. <laughs> San Diego. Yeah. 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 <laughs> literally, literally, a, a good fraction of all the best guys in the world have schools in San Diego right now. For some reason, yeah. This part of it's a surfing. Brazilian jiu-jitsu and surfing culture go together big time in Brazil. Yeah, and I think part of it is, you know, the and the, the original diaspora was just because of all the war and strife and, and you know, political turnover. But a lot of it nowadays, like, you know, I'm sure Brazil is still a fine place to live for a lot of people, but there's just more economic opportunity. Yeah, <laughs> we used to bring my teacher up once a year, and he would go to shoe carnival and Walmart and spend all day That's there. what I'm talking about. <laughs> Sounds like a party. Craig, Craig lurks around the, the pay list down here all the time. He's damn right. It's where I <laughs> do my scrimping for the chicks, you know. Over on- you should mention as a diaspora, one of the commentaries I've got sort of sitting waiting to be written is the effect that World War II had on the fact on, on di- sort of distributing martial arts all over the world. Imagine if World War II hadn't happened what the history of what martial arts in America would be like. We would not be having this podcast nor this conversation. You're probably right. Probably. You know, think Chinese martial arts, Korean, Japanese, Filipino, Thai. Think about what it did to all of them. Yeah. Russia. Yeah, Russia. Very good point, too. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure you're familiar. We have Sambo Steve on all the time, and there's a lot of little memes going around on the Internet about how he's not Russian, but he's a great Sambo teacher, you know? <laughs> On a, on a side note, I might have emailed you this, but I have a, like a six degrees of Kevin Bacon connection to that horrible thing going on with Lloyd Irvin. Oh, wow. There's, really? Yeah, the guy who uh, – we, we have you good on time or am I taking up your time here? No, we're fine. And actually, the recorder's running. I can I can edit this okay. out if we need to, but – Whatever you want. Uh, the, the guy who gave Lloyd Irvin his black belt in Sambo, I, his name escapes me off the top of my head, but you can, you can Google it and find out who it is. This guy – went to prison and is still in prison for having for multiple uh, repeatedly serially raping his stepson. Yep. You know, you heard about I that. I have right? heard about that. Yes. That same guy awarded a black belt in Sambo to a guy who came and taught a seminar at my academy in Sambo. Hmm. That guy is now in prison for uh, uh, sexually molesting his chiropractic patient. Good grief. What's wrong with you people? Stop it. What the hell? Good Lord. I mean, you know, there's going to be stuff like that in any walk of society, but when you see something that concentrated, then you know that there's some sort of culture going on. You think? Yeah. (laughs) At the same time, you know, I I did teach Dave a little bit of Northern Shaolin. Ask yourself, why are we still together? (laughs) (laughs) Because you never did try to slip me the willy. Okay, let's haul this back on topic here, folks. Yeah. We got news, news, news with Craig Keesling, your intrepid reporter. Hey, how you doing, folks? 
you know, this is going to come out of order a little bit. I had these news stories set up, especially this Shaolin Temple series. So this is a little out of order, but it still makes for good juice. Three years ago, the local government of Dongfeng City in central Hunan province ceded their controlling state in the Shaolin Monastery scenic area to China National Travel Service, CTS. The price was very low, yes, in order to attract greater investment among the various government parties, and the CTS vowed to carry out several major construction projects around the ancient site. The birthplace, as we all know, of Chan Buddhism and a great symbol of Chinese martial arts. But as time passed, with CTS pocketing huge profits via the monastery, the projects it promised have never come to fruition. On July 1st, recently, the Dungfeng County government finally and forcibly took over control of the entrance to the scenic area. But just one day later... Yeah, thanks- how long did that last, Craig? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> one day. Thanks to the intervention of higher authorities of Beijing, the CTS had reclaimed managerial rights over the site. This is but the latest plot twist in the ongoing Shaolin soap opera. Since this famous monastery was declared a national scenic location and UNESCO World Heritage Site and became a for-profit entity, all parties that have anything to do with the temple want a slice of the money-making pie. In the name of discovering Kung Fu stars, martial arts monastery, this martial arts monastery, I'm sorry, has created martial arts matches, uh, beauty pageant candidates, uh, in bikinis uh, at the sacred monastery to attract even more coverage. And new businesses every day use the holy name in this village as their brand, paying and getting paid for by rights, including Shaolin Automobile and Shaolin Hotel there in Dongfeng County. Yes, indeed. It's the place to go if you want the real goods. An ostensibly communist government and the Shaolin Monastery getting together for profit. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. Or in Port Dongfeng County or uh, Prefecture or whatever it's mm-hmm. called, getting squeezed in the middle. Uh, you know, it, we, we touched a little bit on uh, politics within martial arts systems earlier, but, you know, when you start mixing huge Real national politics. politics like that in, it's bound to be a fiasco. They make them look like amateurs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the unfortunate thing, though, this is nothing new. It's been going on since the temple was, you know, begun. I mean... Oh, yeah, they've been in favor or disfavor with XYZ Emperor yeah. the whole time. <laughs> you know, they had the, the one guy, you know, some guy came down and he's like, hey, help me fight off these Japanese pirates. They call them Japanese, but they were really a mixture of Chinese, Korean, whatever. Anyway, pirates, and after all that, he came down and said, hey, you know what? I'm going to give the official edict that you can now eat meat and, uh, and drink, drink a wine. Bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's, It's ridiculous crap going on. Anyway, MMA fighter Alexander Emelianenko. Emelianenko, uh, yes. I think. Yeah, of Russia, who recently had a knockout win over Jose Rodrigo Guelke, is now free of his rape charges by the 23-year-old woman who accused him shortly after she was informed she'd have to actually go to a hospital and have a medical investigation of those said charges. She decided it just, you know, maybe I, maybe I didn't get raped. I, I, I don't know. 
Well, Greg, you got to be real careful there because uh, there are false accusations, but the best statistics I can find put them somewhere around 6% of all uh, uh, you know, official rape cases, which is a pretty small fraction. It is, but it is a fraction. It is, it is a fraction, so it's entirely possible. But also, it's so difficult for women to be taken seriously by the police, by so many other people, in these that a lot of times they're just intimidated out of it. So I'm not saying right. one way or the other on this one. I really don't know. But you can't jump to the conclusion just because the prosecution didn't go through or she decided not to press charges that nothing untoward happened there. I'm pretty sure I didn't say anything didn't. No, no. <laughs> No, I'm not. I'm not attacking you, Craig. I'm just making sure you don't give the wrong impression. No. Was no. this in Russia? Go ahead, Jeff. Was this in Russia? Yeah. 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 Of course, there's nothing going on with the government there. No, nothing sure. ever happens there. Yeah. Yeah. Popular fighter. Mm, I don't know. No Indeed. way. Indeed. Well, moving on to something funny. <laughs> oh, aside from my snort there. Um, Interestingly enough, you heard it first here, folks, about one year ago, uh, that flight attendants in Chinese airlines were getting taught Chinese martial arts to handle unruly passengers. That's right. Now, 12, 13 months later, the rest of the journalist world has caught on to this interesting thing. And one thing that they actually have added to the story is the fact that the style that is being taught is Wing Chun. And that makes a little bit of sense, a close-range fighting system if you're in the middle of an aisle on an airplane, that kind of thing. Uh, the other interesting aspect is this uh, journalism fact-checking kind of business going on that's not going on. What I mean by this is that they've made a, a point of saying that these unruly passengers and whatnot that they have to defend themselves against actually have a name. That's right. All over the internet, they are called the King New Tzu. And the funny part about that, when I read this on one article and then went to another and another and seeing it written as King New Tzu all over the place, I realized, you know, that's not really a proper-sounding Mandarin terminology. Let me look this up. So what they claim to be an air rage tribe or Air Rage Clan, actually it's supposed to be Kong Nu Tzu. And yet... So they got their King and their Kong mixed up, is what you're saying. As most Ching and Chong do. (laughs) My point is, is evidently one guy had a great-sounding article, had a typo, because if you look on your keyboard, the I and O are right next to each other. He accidentally pressed the wrong key. And everybody else said... I'm an awesome journalist. I'm going to copy and paste. Thank you, but Haya gets it right. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're, we're breaking news out there. Keep Better believe it, bitches. Upholding journalistic standards here at Haya. Haya. Well, you know, and again, I have to just play devil's advocate a little bit. You journalism, always do. Yeah. Journalism is in such a poor state right now. I think that. Most of these people are just churning it out and trying to hold on to their jobs as their their ballywick diminishes day after day. So, uh, you know, well, yeah, for that devil's advocate, they can all take a Judy top to the throat, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, that's the news from Craig S. Keesling, your intrepid and accurate reporter. There you have it. Um, nice. Go ahead, Jeff. I just said nice. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Is that nice or is that knives? 
<laughs> knives. 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 Yep. <laughs> I mean, you guys do that whole, you know, Inosanto Filipino thing. I know you guys like a blade or two. <laughs> yeah. He'll cut you. Yeah. Be careful. Um, and, uh, you know, let me ask you this, uh, just to wing it for a minute. And I have a little bit of a media mop up here, but it's very short. So we'll go ahead and, and, and just wing it for a second. All right. Um, uh, what do you guys do for blade training? Do you use rubber knives, shock knives? How do you handle that sort of stuff? Because I know that a lot of the Filipino stuff is very blade heavy. Do you do you use sticks primarily? What, what do you all do? Uh, that's quite a can of worms. I'm happy to go on as long as you want me to about it, but shut me up if I go on too sure, long. Sure. There, the, the, the way we go about it, which is in the Inosano Lacosta tradition, is uh, it's divided into areas. Now, I don't have the facilities for all 12 areas here at my academy. We do nine areas. So, for example, the first area is single stick, but that's a deceptive term because that just refers to the training stick, which is a rattan stick. But the single stick also represents the single blade, the single sword, represents a, the side, but the Filipinos call it a jabang or a trisala. It represents the cane. It represents a tomahawk. In other words, it's, it's meant to represent any one-handed weapon that's got enough heft to separate it from a dagger-length weapon. Okay. So that's area one. And I use what I call the nine-to-one rule, which is 90% of the training that you do translates from one of those areas to another so, you know, if you're doing a, a stick uh, drill with a partner, it's not 90% of what you're doing translates directly to what you would do with the blade or with the jabang or with the cane. But 10% is where you learn what's different. What, do you, what would you do differently now if you had the blade in your hand instead of the stick or if you had a tomahawk in your hand instead of the stick? Well, let, let me stop you right there and ask you, how important when you're training with a stick in lieu of, a, of an edged weapon is edge orientation? How do you work that into the program? That's, that's part of the 10%. Okay. So as the student's skill grows, you, you, you want them to become more cognizant of, you know, what's happening on the thumb side of the stick, what's happening on the knuckle side of the stick, and having them understand that if it were a blade, that's a factor. With the beginners, you know, it's, again, we're just building a baseline of experience. Um, but as time goes on, absolutely, we, we want them to be more cognizant. Um, certain, certain techniques for disarming and trapping uh, fall into the 10% that applies only to stick and doesn't apply to the, to, the, to the blade. And you need to know that. You need to understand so it doesn't just come out at the wrong time. Mm. Um, now, that's just describing one area. That's a single stick. Then there's a double stick. And double stick would, would basically, basically be doubling up any of the things I just described. Sure. Then, then there's long and short, which is the third area. And that's stick in one hand and a dagger in the other hand. But it could be a long-necked beer bottle in one hand and a tire iron in the you know, so any t- any uh, sort of asymmetrical pairing of weapons would come under long and short for the drills that are done with that. So you have been to Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> are you kidding? Southern Indiana is like a finger sticking up from the south. Okay. <laughs> oh <my laughs> nice. Uh, so anyway, uh, the fourth area is is uh, double dagger, and uh, and dagger is mostly dagger, but it can include anything you know relatively short. Doesn't have a lot of heft, but does damage because it's a dagger. Um, and then the fifth area is single dagger. And then you get into more esoteric areas after those five. You get into empty hand, uh, which can be just empty hand. And that's actually this, the Majapahit course is sort of the empty hand part of Filipino martial arts at this academy. Um, but then also it refers to empty hand against weapons. So when you're doing defenses against sticks or knives or you know whatever it might be, that falls into that area of training. Then the next area of training is pocket stick, which is uh, the Japanese would call a yawara or a kubotan. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the Philippines, it's called a tabak ma'alit. And uh, then uh, you've got the next area is flexible weapons. And that 
like for example, the nunchaku. A lot of people don't know that the method that Bruce Lee was using with his nunchakus was the Filipino method in the movies because it was Guru Dan. Guru Dan is the one that showed him how to use them. Um, so uh, he was not using the Okinawan method mostly. I mean, everything he did was a mix of, of a lot of influences, but it was nearly all Filipino method that he was using in the films. Um, but, but flexible weapons includes much more than the nunchaku. Uh, and again, the, uh, it, the nunchaku was in the Philippines hundreds of years before it was in Okinawa, just as the Sai was. Um, and it, they call it a tabak toyok, which I think means broken stick. Um, but anyway, uh, it's, it also includes things like a, a stingray's tail that's been dried and made into a weapon. It includes a whip, which they call the latigo. It includes the sarong, the garment worn in Southeast Asia. Yeah. Right? You actually take it off and it's a weapon. You use it for tying and binding. They will even snap it like a towel. I've seen three, three one-inch boards broken snap. Of course, now we, we talked last week on your show about, about breaking boards. But, but it's pretty interesting to snap a towel and break three boards. You know what an SPG is, right? <laughs> no, what's what's an SPG? The wrong party girl. So I know about them whips. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that includes that. It, inc- it would include t- taking your shoes off and tying the laces together and using it, or your belt, or a, or a handkerchief as a flexible weapon. So that's a pretty broad area. The flexible oh, weapons. Some, some thuggy action there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Good. That would fit there too. And then um, uh, then you start getting. And then the next is pole length weapons or or two handed weapons which would include um, anything you would use two-handed, including a European two-handed sword or a, or a katana. It would also include a staff or a spear or an oar or a paddle. Um, you know, improvised weapons are automatically and always part of Filipino martial arts. Those are the areas that I concentrate on here at the academy. And then, of course, the, the last areas would include things like um, projectile weapons, like bows and arrows and blowguns. Um, and even, like, you got to remember a lot of pirates in Southeast Asia, they, they would include cannons in this. <laughs> and sure. uh, firearms. firearms. Uh, then there, there are actually uh, uh, thrown weapons, and that would include thrown daggers, thrown knives, thrown coins. Um, it's very common in, in uh, Filipino street fighting uh, uh, tactics to carry a handful of s- salt or sand with some uh, cayenne pepper or chili pe- powder in your pocket uh, to throw into the eyes of your assailant. Or they practice flicking a cigarette, just like American bar fighters. Oh, do, I, I learned that in Tennessee. Yep. <laughs> You know, so you get a big lit stogie in your eye just before the knife hits you in the belly, you know. Yep. Uh, and then, of course, the 12th area, it would combine sort of the uh, mental, uh, metaphysical, spiritual. Uh, and I kind of I kind of leave that. Uh, I, I put the historical part in the history and I talk about the culture, but I, I don't want to get into any of the mysticism. That's not my not my bang. Uh, so. So anyway, um, uh, it's it's really along the lines of areas. Now, when you're talking about blades uh, for training. Uh, there's, there's definitely a live blade training and, and how far you take that depends on the level of the people involved. I'll give you one example. Uh, uh, a lot of the Dan and Osano's teachers were gentlemen who were Filipino immigrants to the U S and when world war II hit, a lot of them were in their thirties and forties, joined the U S army and went back to the Philippines. They dropped them off in submarines while the Japanese were controlling it. These guys formed like guerrilla groups in the mountains and in the jungles they would come out at night and ambush Japanese patrols and, and supply columns. And these guys, when they would train during the day, trained with live blades. They would do all the drills with each other with live blades. And they just got in the habit of doing it like that. And people watch them and think they're crazy. But that's how they do it. Um, and it, there's a, quite a tradition of that. But I don't teach my students to do that. You know? so, and Guru Dan does, you know, he strongly discourages people from doing it. He thinks it's, there's a better way to do it. But he does acknowledge that that's the tradition. 
Um, so we, we do a lot of training with uh, aluminum blades. As a matter of fact, one of my students has built quite a cottage industry out of manufacturing aluminum training blades that are dull and safe to use, but still hurt, you know, when they hit sure. you. Um, and uh, and I, I remember the episode you had with the lady who made the amazing uh, training. Yeah. I to get with her and buy some of her stuff. Her stuff looks great. Oh, it is fantastic. And we, we do use the, the rubber ones sometimes, although not that much. And, and also... Um, Edgar Solite, who was a famous uh, Filipino martial arts instructor, he passed away uh, 20 years ago. His widow makes a lot of Filipino uh, safety training equipment, and she makes soft sticks and soft knives that have a, a firm core with a padding around it and canvas around that. And we, we make extensive use of those. So I really use a battery of different things. And I, if I can afford the shock knives, which I plan on doing in the near future, they're like 500 bucks a pop. Yeah, they're pricey. Yeah, but I really want to do that. I think that's an outstanding way to train because you do want to have a, a respect for what that weapon can do. And at high levels, I think people do that. But beginners get a little cavalier about, you know, you don't want to trade in a knife fight. That's pretty stupid. No, yeah. right? And so, you know, that's something that we really try to bring out with, uh, with the training. But we, we really use a lot of different methods, just like a boxer is going to train on a heavy bag and on a speed bag and shadow box and spar. We want to hit a lot of different training methods so we don't get habits built up too much. That are going to be counterproductive. Do you guys use? <clears throat> sorry, do you use pels or anything like that for like full power striking with with the weapons? Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, use uh, used car tires are huge in the uh, Filipino martial arts industry. Awesome. They 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 uh, there are all kinds of guys that have got little cottage industries of building training dummies out of different configurations of carved up and cut up uh, uh, tires, and it, it does make an excellent. Excellent Pell. It's really durable, but a wooden post is still, you know, great go-to training oh, yeah. device. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, you can do a ton with a heavy bag and a, and a soft stick or a heavy bag and a rattan stick. Yeah. You can do a... You can't really do like, much with a knife in a heavy bag, though. That sucks. <laughs> that's true. That's true. You know, uh, <laughs> one good poke and it's a beach party. <laughs> one of uh, one of the guys I've trained with is, is a doctor, a guy named Dr. G, Dr. Mong G. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bondo. Bondo. Yeah, um, he's he's uh, in Canton, in uh, Ohio, uh, not Canton, but in a, um, a college town in over in Athens, Ohio, and uh, so he's not too far from me. And one of his favorite tricks when he takes guys out to camps is to hand them a Marine K bar knife. You know what that yeah, is, right? Yeah. And say, okay, son, go over there, and I want you to stab that log as hard as you can. And then half the guys stab it, and their hand slides right down over the oh. handguard. And, and he says, "That's your first lesson in knife fighting." <laughs> How to grip the knife. You'll remember that. Well, you know, what you're talking about, and I don't have any real direct experience with the Filipino arts, but uh, uh, a fellow named uh, Kilton Nongmathiam, I believe is how you pronounce his last name, he came out and did a couple of seminars uh, for my teacher, and uh, he does an Indian martial art from Manipur called Tong Ta, and it's a very similar organization, and it's one of the older codified arts out there, probably, you know, late 1500s, and all of these older battlefield-oriented arts seem to, they sort of almost marginalize the empty hand stuff because they were all using weapons, if at all possible. If I can get an edge over you, I will, yeah. As a matter of fact, I've always made a point with my students that, uh, Filipino martial arts has a tendency to sort of turn the traditional approach on its head in this sense, that most uh, like Japanese and Okinawan karate schools and Kung Fu schools that I've been to, you train empty hand first. Yeah. And then stay for a while, you get into weapons. And that's, that's the way it's done. And it's perfectly understandable in our, in our culture. Then the Filipino martial arts, 
the reason you're doing empty hand is because you done screwed up and lost all your weapons. That's exactly their philosophy. And I think, you know, it's just a factor, I think, of the fact that a lot of the, you know, the quote-unquote traditional martial arts that we train uh, are modern developments where it does make more sense to put the bulk of your practice into empty hand at first because you're more likely to get in an empty-handed fight on the street. The case could be made in even uh, a civilized development. I mean, you know, it's, it's good to live in a world where we don't have to carry weapons around all the time. Yeah. With that being said, though, you know, improvised weaponry is one of my favorite things to teach. <laughs> Absolutely. Anything that you can pick up will fall into one of the 12 categories, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. No, that sounds like a fantastic system. Well, um, we're heading into running log territory, so let me throw this out here real quick. Uh, Jeff, I think you'll like this one. I'm reading a book right now, and I'm not done with it, so I'm not going to review it, but I just want to let our listeners know about it because... I intend to, if at all possible, get one of the editors of this thing on. It's a collection of essays, but it's called Martial Arts and Philosophy, Beating and Nothingness. Nice. Yeah, somebody, give me a... Nice. <laughs> give me an old uh, Jean-Paul Sartre hi for that one. <laughs> Jean-Paul Sartre. Mm. Uh, My sister used to have a button that she wore that said, Jean-Paul Sartre isn't. Ah, nice. <laughs> He said, I lust, therefore I am. There you go. <laughs> um, but this is uh, shaping up to be really interesting. It's a series of different authors, you know, uh, uh, attacking martial arts from the philosophical standpoint and, and vice versa. So I just wanted to give everybody a heads up about that one. I've read far enough into it. I can recommend it. You can get it on Amazon, Kindle version, whatever. But check that out because that's going to be a feature on the show here soon, hopefully. If you want to get ahead of the game, get out there and read that puppy. That sounds awesome. Yeah, definitely. Craig, you're leaning in like you got something to say. I'm just ready <laughs> to say something once I do. <laughs> <laughs> Craig's very excited. Well, um, that's pretty much going to wrap it up for us, but I just want to hear at the end, I want to thank you, Jeff, for, yeah, definitely. for all the contributions you made to the show. And, uh, We've got more in the hopper that we're going to put out. Uh, I might even go ahead and just tack on the What is a Master to the end of this one. So Thank you, should. your work is not wasted on that. Um, and, uh, and I wanted to ask you, what are your plans with this? Are you thinking about branching out and not being the redheaded stepchild at Haya anymore, but having your own podcast? What are, what are you doing with these moving forward? Well, I'm, I'm kind of open in that regard. Um, I, I like... Uh, as long as you guys don't mind me tagging along in your in your slipstream, I I like being able to jump right in and have a bigger listenership. You know that's that that's really handy for me. If, but I've been prepared from the beginning if it didn't work out to to try to strike out on my own. But I knew that would be an uphill struggle. I know how hard it is to break into something like podcasting and get something going. So so long as you guys will have me, I'm happy to do it the way I'm doing it. It's it's hard enough to write five minutes once a week to, that comes out halfway decent. So I'm, I'm happy with it is, but I'm, I'm ready to try just about anything. I've got these things I've been wanting to spout about and beef about for years, and it gives me a, a great little platform to do it, even if nobody's listening. Right. <laughs> well, let's say a bunch of our listeners are listening. They're loving what they hear from you, Jeff. Uh, how can they get in touch with you and, and shoot some feedback your way and all that good stuff? Well, there's in-person. Oh, wait a minute. No, you want to know, like, my, my website. <laughs> yeah, they can drive out and... <laughs> Cross my hands. Talk to me, you better be here. That's right. Uh, my uh, my um, website address is rp. That's as in Rising Phoenix. rpmartialarts.com. Uh, my email address is rpmaa followed by the numeral one 
at evansville.net. And um, you can hear me here at hi You can, you can go through, uh, you know, leave some, oh, I'm also on Facebook. I just started doing Facebook a couple weeks ago. So uh, I'm on Facebook under Rising Phoenix Martial Arts Academy. So, you know, hit me up on Facebook. And uh, I'm really curious if anybody's got any uh, feedback on what I'm saying. And if, and if you don't, well, the heck with you. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> well, I, have you heard from anyone? Because uh, I yet, but I, I didn't expect any at first because it's, you know, it's, it's new. People got to start letting it cook in their brain for a while and decide whether they like it or not. And I get that. Yeah. And for about, you know, with podcasting, it's just a fact of life that for about every thousand listeners, you get, you get one that will interact with you in that way. Yeah. So. We got great <laughs> numbers and like the twiddles on interaction. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to joke with you that I, I now have the opportunity to get to make my voice heard by tens of people. That's right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Well, look, Jeff, you're you're welcome. Uh, your content is always welcome here at Hiya. So we'll we'll keep uh, we will keep you in the loop as long as you're willing to provide it. Uh, hey, listen, I just want to extend my thanks first of all for what you two do. Uh, I don't know if everybody who listens to this has any clue how much friggin' work goes into putting this all together, and just all the stuff you do, just out of love for what you're doing, is amazing. And I, I love listening to it, and I always have, whether I was involved with it or not. And the the, the trust that you've extended me by allowing me to, to speak my little thing, you know, for the last few weeks has, uh, has, has really been appreciated. And, and also, Dave, some of the tips that you've extended towards me and tolerating my ineptness when it comes to things technical it's, has been really appreciated. So thank you so much. And I, I hope I'm able to add something to your future podcast. Definitely. You definitely shall. And uh, it's no big deal. Look, you know, I learned those tricks on the Internet from other podcasters. It's uh, we're a tight knit group because we all realize when we sit down and really contemplate what it is we do and how much money it costs us and what sort of return you get on it, how stupid we are and how we really need to hang together. <laughs> learn from each other. And just learn from like, each other and try to make our lives easier. Just like the martial arts. Yeah. Well, it's all kung fu at the, at the end of the day. I know. I know, That's right. <laughs> Well, on that note, folks, uh, it's been another great episode. Stick around for uh, uh, the Marshall Brain with Jeff Westfall at the end of this show. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you. And uh, we will see you next time. See ya. Westfall for the martial brain. What is a martial arts master? I find the title master to be vague at best, sometimes causing confusion and even occasionally stoking the fires of egomania. One of the most impressive and knowledgeable martial artists I have ever met is my teacher, Guru Dan Inosanto. On the first day I met him, another student approached to ask him a question, opening with, Excuse me, Master Inosanto. At which point, Guru Dan politely interrupted him with, Please, don't call me master. I'm not a master. This made quite an impression on me. Whatever Guru Inosanto's opinion of his own level, it didn't seem to rise to the level of master.
So what does the title master mean? Does it mean that you have mastered every detail of your martial arts system, whatever that means? Is it possible to improve above and beyond the level of mastery? I teach six different martial arts at my academy. I hold a black belt or instructor certification in each of them. None of these was an honorary promotion. I put in the sweat, blood, and time for each and every rank, although it wasn't for the title that I put in the work. The knowledge and enhanced skills were enough for me. There are a number of other men and women I know personally from around the world who hold similar portfolios of credentials. Occasionally, I will hear it claimed that it is not possible to legitimately hold such an assortment of ranks, that one cannot live long enough. I'm 55 years old and have been training for 42 years. I do not claim to have mastered any of the styles that I teach. I do claim, however, to have learned enough to teach them. If there has been a trick to it, it has been as a result of what I call the asymptotic learning curve hypothesis. When learning a skill set, the fastest pace of learning is always at the beginning, taking in information in great chunks. Processing, internalizing, and refining the skill set takes more time, and slows down the uptake of even newer information. I have learned, however, that it is perfectly possible, if you have enough time in your training schedule, to spend time refining the skills of one art begun earlier, and later that day put time into another art that you are just beginning. Again, learning the basics in great big chunks. I sometimes compare this to the process of painting a picture. Frequently, the artist will have the outline of every important element of his painting sketched on the canvas within a few hours, but then take weeks or months to adequately fill in the details. It is also not uncommon for the artist to have several works in progress simultaneously. I learned the important basics of the skill set of teaching fairly early on in my teaching career. It was not necessary to relearn the basics of teaching each time I began to teach a new art. Once I got permission to teach from my teacher in any subsequent art, I could immediately apply my already developed instructing skills to it, while learning new methods specific to the art as I went along. I think much of my concern with the title Master ties in with another concern of mine regarding the martial arts. This is the feeling, if not outright belief, that many people seem to have that martial arts is a form of magic, or at least has some magical properties, and by extension, that a martial arts master possesses strange arcane powers. It is also sad but true that many martial artists do nothing to disabuse the uneducated of these notions. Indeed, some actively work towards promoting them by putting on farcical demonstrations of their amazing powers and basking in the adulation of fans and underlings, or, excuse me, I mean students. The human brain is dangerously susceptible to being taken in by such condescending tricks, and I find their use offensive. A comedic fantasy of mine is to imagine these powers are real, and to further imagine setting up a match between two such masters. What would it look like? Psychic anticipation of each other's tactics? Levitation? Fireballs? I guess I'll always prefer the simple title of coach or teacher to that of master. I find it more aptly descriptive. It also relieves one from the pesky burden of having to expand energy jealously guarding one's status. Don't even get me started about the title Grandmaster. Anyway, that's what I think, but I could be wrong. 
Let me know what you think by contacting me through my website at rpmartialarts.com. This has been Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. Dancing, dancing over beats, romancing microphones with my glorious speech. No shorts like BBD, I'm next like DVD. I hit the Metropolitan with music, I'll be modeling. Showing off, going off, wigging. Digging up the town where I come from, my humble beginnings. The neo narrator, creative caretaker. Above the five flavors like solar flares on paper. Welcome, folk things, let's go smoke things. Like dank or chocolate tie, so we can all get high. I touch any beat with heat I pack, nigga, I frequent that. In my never ending quest, seeking scratch. Speaking facts, we can rap. Fuck scrapping and tapping jaws, I'm cracking doors Open for brothers coming after me, fuck apathy I ain't got time to blame the world for my problems I'm a grown fucking man and I understand Plus knowledge being gathered each day make me speak this way So get it, the way that I spit it Critics couldn't never call me half-witted I'm the rainbow of flow for those in the know My logo represents thought processing To keep them all guessing with these lyrical blessings Classes in session I don't know about them women you were speaking in Singapore, but American women don't come to no WT. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing but a good shot, you know. <laughs>